Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 127 for January 17th, 2008, Securing the Enterprise. Security Now is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for your support. Time for Security Now. I'm Leo Laporte, feeling a little bit better. Steve Gibson is, as always, the peak of health. <laughs> it's because he never leaves his Irvine security lab. That's right. My my antivirus disinfected, you know, uh, tower. Of I'll tell you, health. I'm, I'm going to start wearing um, surgical masks on planes. I think I really I, this is the worst. Although, you know, the, the one, I don't know if it's consolation, but I've talked to so many people who've had terrible colds this year. It is a, whatever that cold is. It's going around is a doozy. Don't get it. Would, I'll work on that. That'd be my advice to you. Stay away from it. So uh, we had a fun time last week answering a lot of questions. What are we going to do this week to top well, that? W- uh, actually, one listener wrote a long sort of, well, explanation about his company's problems with uh, enforcing security policy. Oh, yeah. And I really liked it. And I it sort of brought up the whole issue to me uh, that we haven't ever really discussed before of the challenges of corporate IT security policy and enforcement, the inherent tension between the the security staff, you know, IT and and um, employees. So I just sort of wanted to talk about some of the things that I think that both employees face and corporations face in this battle to secure a you know typically very heterogeneous. Uh, complex and and more complex every day environment. Yeah, it is. It's a real. I I do not envy our our IT uh, pro friends because they've got a they've got a real task. Yeah, it worse. I mean, imagine how hard it is. It's bad enough you have to lock your own system down, locking down the systems of hundreds of thousands of users, all of whom have their own ideas about what they want to do uh, on that computer. Exactly. But but before we do that, let's uh, is there any news in the security? Oh, there was a bunch of stuff this week that was really sort of interesting and fun. Uh, last week, we talked about, you may remember, uh, master boot record, that is to say yeah. MBR rootkits. Okay. Last week, they were theory. This week, they are in the wild. Oh, wow. That was fast. <laughs> it turns out that there are... Four vulnerabilities which are known and have been patched. Microsoft has a a, a, a JVM, a, a a Java, a virtual machine byte verify vulnerability. A a problem with MDAC, which is one of their database APIs. A different problem with the Internet Explorer's vector markup language, the VML vulnerability, and a problem with XML core <laughs> services. Those four different problems are being used to install, currently install, a new 
set of master boot record root kits. Wow. These have been found in the wild. So when someone visits a hostile web page, and as we've we, we talked about before, this is sort of pretty much the the typical way bad stuff now gets in your machine is that one way or another you are tricked into going somewhere bad and a known vulnerability, hopefully a known vulnerability, which hopefully you've patched, will try to do something bad to you if again if you're if you're current and if if Microsoft knows about this or 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 I don't mean to just blame Microsoft. I mean there there are in fact, for example, um there's now proof of concept code out for a new QuickTime remote code execution vulnerability that affects both Mac and Windows. Mm. Now of course it would have to be different code in order to run in a Mac than it would right. run in Windows. So the same the same exploit of that vulnerability could not be used across both platforms, but both of them are vulnerable because they both are using QuickTime. Right. Uh, and this this was something that came out uh, with zero day. So Mac, I mean, Apple wasn't even aware that this existed when when this thing first showed up. So 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 this is typically what's happening. The the really scary thing is being a rootkit this thing gets control of and patches the OS before it loads. That is, the, in, in this case, it is a Windows-only MBR rootkit, and it makes itself undetectable by antivirus software. So it's a rootkit in you know in the now, pure sense of getting in and modifying the kernel prior to loading in order to protect itself. Now, uh, the anti-rootkit programs like Rootkit Revealer from Mark Rosinovich, uh, Blacklight uh, from uh, Frisk, those those would work against something like this, right? Um, I don't know at this point. This is so new that not much research has been done. I haven't seen this myself, and I haven't read much about it, except that, uh, except that it, these things are now in the wild. Wow. And w- yeah. what's sort of interesting, too, is that you know, this is what we faced – 15 years ago with the very first viruses. I mean, when, when people were using so-called sneaker net, you know, to uh, by mistake, you know, you, you get floppies that would be infected and you stick a floppy in someone's computer. And when you accessed it, it would install itself over on that machine's hard drive. I mean, this is, you know, we I mean, we've seen in the old days, master boot record viruses that, that sort of, you know, were all in fashion for a while, then went away and as security is tightened up everywhere else, this is one little hole that has never been patched in our newer machines. Mm. And so it's been sort of rediscovered as, hey, look, uh, we can still infect the MBR and that'll give us control before the OS boots and using state of the art techniques now um, to to analyze code. It's much easier to 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 patch something on the fly and modify the kernel as it comes up. Right. I mean, a, a traditional rootkit would get run at some point during boot up, just not so early. Exactly. Normally, if, for example, it installs itself as a device driver, a, a boot time device driver, which the OS would unwittingly load, and then being in the kernel as device drivers are, gives that thing a lot of control. It right. would then go about patching the kernel in order to obscure its own presence. So by in loading this, in the master boot record, how, what, what is the advantage? Well, the advantage is that literally nothing is running. That is, the, the, the way... No the way security assist, software, nothing. 
Well, you literally, yes, yeah. nothing. The the not even Windows. That, that first sector is loaded into raw memory. I mean, I'm, and in fact, the system is not even in protected mode. It's in um, it, it, it's in real mode, which is the way this code runs. So there aren't even protection services available from the chipset at that point. I mean, it is it is literally. You know the, the BIOS has run at that point, but then the the system's in real mode. That that one sector, that 512 bytes, is copied into a location in low memory. Then that sector is jumped into. That is that chunk of memory is jumped into and executed. That normally then goes about finding the 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 beginning sectors of the bootable partition, which it then loads into memory and then runs. In this case, it loads more of itself, that is, um, more of the first track of the hard drive where this thing lives in order to get, you know, conscious enough Mm -hmm. to do uh, the kind of damage that it needs to. It then goes out and patches, on the fly, patches the operating system, which then boots Although it's already been infected, wow! So it's it's, it's spooky stuff. Yeah, I, you know, yeah. no doubt the AV people will get on this. And Microsoft um, will will get on this because it you are running in Windows when you when you um, are caught by one of these Microsoft vulnerabilities, which then allows the Windows executing right. code to install that master boot record code on the hard drive. So that's the hole that Next needs to get plugged. Right, right. Then that, that's when security software is running, and you can watch for that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, well, also last week we talked about how 70,000-plus sites had been infected by um, malware recently. That is, it, it was JavaScript that was being installed, taking advantage of some SQL um, vulnerabilities in order to in order to compromise websites with exactly this kind of of malicious software. Mm-hmm. Um, what's just turned up recently is a new twist on this. The the way they knew it was seventy thousand is that this this malicious JavaScript was appearing on web pages of sites that were being dynamically generated. You know, basically there was um, an SQL database on the back end that was serving pages dynamically. That got infected. That is, the SQL tables got infected, which caused it to to put this malicious JavaScript on these pages. Well, the the way people knew, for example, it was 70,000, was that they simply Googled some of the some of the malicious JavaScript and Google had already been out there browsing around wow. uh, dutifully cataloging all these pages. So it was easy to find the newest twist, which has just appeared, is there is now polymorphic JavaScript that has been created, which renames itself and reorganizes itself uh-huh. and is is not broadly searchable in the right. way. In, in, in the way that static JavaScript can be. It's different on so, every page. Exactly. So naturally, I mean, what, what we're seeing here in the standard sort of, you know, cat and mouse game between malware and anti-malware forces is that the bad guys have said, okay, we don't want you to know that it's 70,000 sites. In fact, we don't want you to be able to find us at all. So what they've done is they just upped the ante again 
by making their own malicious script modify itself so that the, so that you can't use a search in order to quickly find it all, notify those websites and and get this stuff removed. Mm-hmm. So this is a this is a serious increase in escalation of this problem. Hmm. Also in this week's news, uh you're going to get a kick out of this one, Leo. The gray hat hackers have been zeroing in on taking advantage of UPnP enabled routers. Aha, you've been warning against UPnP for some time now. From yes, from the first moment this bad idea appeared, um you know, I've been saying and and I know that you've been repeating for example um uh, in in your various other um venues the danger the inherent danger of leaving UPnP enabled on routers. There are now some hacker sites that have succeeded in using first cross-site scripting and more recently no vulnerabilities in flash version 8 or later in other words they're able to take flash content and flash version 8 has become so powerful there is a navigate to url function and a url request object that can be used to generate local LAN traffic. That's all you need in order to talk to a router that has universal plug-and-play enabled and use the UPnP technology to rewrite the DNS server or open holes through the router to allow ports to be exposed to the outside. Mm. All of that's been done. So we don't yet have any malicious we don't, we don't know yet that there is any malicious code which is doing this but this is what you know I've been predicting would happen from the beginning because it's just it's too powerful and there's no security model associated with this first version of universal plug and play that all routers that now all consumer routers have and which most have unfortunately enabled by default so so again, this is this is different than the Windows defect, which was discovered a long time ago, and for which I created the unplug and pray freeware. What that did was there was a there was a a remote code execution vulnerability in the original Windows XP universal plug and play service that was running on on windows by default i was arguing that well and of course we had no xp firewall on by default and it wasn't until service pack 2 of xp that the windows xp firewall was running so i argued that there was no reason to have that server running and so my little unplug and pray utility just disables it's it stops and disables the ssdp service which is the simple service dis- discovery protocol in Windows XP. Well, that's different from routers, that is, you know, the 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 NAT routers that everyone is using now, um, hopefully everyone, to, to protect their borders and to allow them to share um, a single IP, a single public IP a, among multiple machines in their own LAN. Um, most of the routers have this universal plug-and-play technology, the idea being that it solves the problem of NAT traversal simply by opening ports through the router to allow 
hopefully expected and solicited traffic to come back in through the router. The problem is there's no security model for that. That is to say, any packets that are generated on the LAN inside can discover the presence of universal plug-and-play services and talk to them and cause them to do things. So I would, I would once again say to all of our listeners to take this seriously. What this means is that, that at some point in the future, as we've been predicting, there will be malware which, once it gets on your machine, reconfigures your router behind your back to do things you don't want to do or don't want it to do. For example, changing your DNS to something fraudulent mm -hmm. means mm -hmm. that all of the machines you've got will be going to some bogus DNS server to pick up the IPs of common URLs, which is, I mean, that's everything that phishing sites wants. I mean, I mean, it, it's it's like the the holy grail of redirecting your computers to malicious um, spoofing sites. Wow! So we're getting closer to it. So the best thing to do is go into your router and disable UPnP. Yes. I mean, yes. We've been if, saying if that you, for some time. Exactly. Now, I mean, there there are going to be some side effects to it. You know, where but, I uh, hear from people a lot is uh, Xbox Live. Unfortunately, Xbox Live has this little feature where you can check. Um, I forgot what they call it, but it's 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 uh it's definitely a, a a euphemism. But you could check your accessibility to other yes. players, right? And I think they're like three grades of of right. accessibility. Right. Um, it turns and they encourage out, you basically to turn on UPnP. Unfortunately, they do. Um, it turns out though that there is a very simple set of static ports. Right. Which you could map through instead. You you could disable universal plug and play, reboot your router so that you flush any existing um, uh, mappings that may have already been set up. Then you can do your own static port forwarding of just a couple ports, and it's not many. It might even only be one. But I remember that that it, it's at the most just a few. Map them through to the IP of your Xbox, and then you're okay. Then it's happy. It's completely on the net. It's fully game enabled. Yet you haven't had to turn Universal Plug and Play on in your router in order to get there. And it's unfortunate because most people who want to play Xbox Live aren't that necessarily that sophisticated. Yeah, exactly. It is two ports. It's UDP 88 and 3074 on UDP and TCP. Yeah, I'll put a right. link in our show notes for the um, settings and, and at Microsoft's Technon. On how to do that for people who want to do that and maybe help your friends. Cause unfortunately what's happening is a lot of kids are basically <laughs> disabling their router security so they could play Xbox live games with their friends. Right. It's kind of a problem. Okay. Alex Eckleberry, our friend at Sunbelt software. Yeah. Uh, reported in his blog and has some nice screenshots of get this a, a new Trojan it's called the Delph CTK, D-E-L-F dot CTK Trojan. Uh, when you get your computer infected with this thing, it puts up a screen that looks convincingly like Microsoft's security center, mm -hmm. informing you that it says, quote, error, browser security and anti-adware software component license 
Exprited. If there's a little typo there, it meant to say expired, but it got a couple of letters wrong. Exprited. It says exprited. Surfing. That's what you always look for, by the way, is grammatical and spelling errors. Exactly. Hackers well, yeah. Spell. <laughs> that says surfing porn, adult, and some other kind of sites you like without this software is dangerous and threatens with infection of your computer by harmful viruses, adware, spyware, etc. And its recommendation would be? Oh, it forces, first of all, it takes over your machine, locks it up. There's nothing you can do. It requires that you make a call to a 900 number. Oh, dear. uh, Which costs $35. So basically, this is $35 phone call extortion, Trojan. Oh, my goodness. And one of the, um, there are several numbers it gives. One of them, for example, is a number that ends up going to the West African nation of Cameroon, where there is where there is a call center. You have to enter a pin. I mean, it, the, wow. the screens are, the screens are, you know, obviously not grammatically very convincing, but the user has no choice. I mean, literally, well, you have to call. There must be call. something you can do. You don't have to call that number, do you? Well, you know, Alex says that your machine is locked up. Oh, wow. And the only way to get this thing to 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 leave you alone is to call the number. You enter some pins that come up on the screen in order to, which cost $35, oh. in order to get your computer back. That's appalling. That is just appalling. Now, you would get this is a Trojan. So you get it in your email and you run it, or you get it by going to a website that's been compromised and you haven't done your updates, things like that. Yep. It gets onto your machine and then it says, okay, we're going to charge you $35 to have your computer back. Now, if you have an antivirus running and you accidentally open this file, will it still infect you? Uh, I don't know whether AV is yet up to speed. This apparently is pretty new. Yeah. Yeah. So certainly, again, standard practice is keep your AV patterns up to date. Sure, but even then, don't open attachments. Don't, you know. Yep. There was a, there's another little blurb uh, that I wanted to mention. I've I was just setting up a brand new little HP machine. I got a couple little uh, HP pavilions just because they were sort of small and cute, and they're nice for you know various um, single purposes. I was shocked by the amount of what now the industry is beginning to call crapware that was pre-installed on this thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was unbelievable. Well, the point is that it turns out that there is now the third in a series of zero-day remote code execution flaws in the pre-installed HP software. Oh, my God. Yep. So not only is this stuff annoying, you know, all this demo wear and junk that you didn't ask for, but the problem is that it's got security flaws also, which are which are generally, you know, much less maintained than the stuff from Microsoft. So I I did have an experience also with both a Dell laptop and a Dell um, desktop recently and I and I was, you know, holding my breath when I booted them the first time, thinking, oh, God, you know, how much junk is there going to yeah. be on? This? And the answer was like none. Well, Dell it, has this new thing where you can order it without the crapware. 
And yes, on their site, they're even boasting that there is no demoware installed on these machines. And I thought, well, that's, you know, I mean, it has been my experience with two recent Dell machines that they're no longer loaded with all this junk that you don't want. They're listening to their their customers. Do you know what uh, the HP demo is that has this exploit in it? Uh, It is HP's remote system update. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) Now, presumably HP will patch this. They have before. Three times this has happened. And there's now another instance of it. Good Lord. So, yes, it's, so it's not just a matter of this stuff being unwanted. It's also insecure. It's yeah. Okay, and finally, this is just too bizarre, but I had to share this with our listeners. Digital picture frames are now infecting PCs huh. <laughs> with malware. You're just full of good news today. <laughs> there have been multiple reports of people using a USB key to transfer photos to digital picture frames, which in turn, the firmware on the frames installs PC malware onto their USB um, drives, which then, when plugged back into the PC, take over the PC. Wow. And these are brand new, from the factory, digital picture frames. Which which manufacturer? Uh, I don't have any. I don't have any names. Jeez, all right. But they're, because there have been multiple reports of of picture frames doing this, in some cases, the, some of them were resold. But but it has been also confirmed in brand new digital picture Jeez. frames that there is there's malware installed on them that then jumps to the USB um, storage and then over to a PC. Wow. This is from a security focus, this story. So I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to this as well. Yeah. And I think, I think computer world also reported that on uh, as well. So, you know, it's just like, Oh my God, if, I mean, if, if it, if it, I mean, this is the, 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 the law and the rule that we learn about security is, you know, if it can be done, it will be done. This is, you know, this is what led me to believe universal plug and play from the first moment I saw it was a bad idea. And similarly, um, you know, the, the the MBR rootkit is, is another example of that. Um, it's just we're going to see more of this, too, because, you know, these digital picture frames are a perfect example. We are now surrounding ourselves in our lives with little computers executing code. Right. And they talk to everything. Uh, you know, that's scary. Yep. Wow. Well, I did want to share a, a short and sort of fun spin right anecdote. Uh, with, with our listeners this is from a guy named charles hayes who wrote to us um oh on the 12th so just uh just five days ago yeah. he says i purchased Spinrite around may or june of 2006 so that was about a year and a half ago he says and it saved me from reinstalling windows my computer would reboot every time i clicked on one particular email also when i tried to compress the folders in my email it would reboot and I could not run Windows Defrag. I remembered about Spinrite on the screensavers. Um, you know, your old show on Tech TV, mm-hmm, Leo. Mm-hmm. And he said, and I purchased it. I ran it, and it fixed the problem completely. So that's a year and a half ago. And he says, a few days ago, my computer would re- reboot on its own, Uh-oh. usually within 30 minutes to an hour after I logged in. Hmm. I tried different memory, and that didn't help. I thought I might have to buy another motherboard. But I ran Spinrite again, 
and it found one area with unrecoverable data Hmm. and repaired it. He says, I figured that may be the problem. And sure enough, when I rebooted back into Windows, it's been running perfectly ever since. He says, this product has been a lifesaver for me more than once. I'll just have to start running it more often. Thanks. And that, that really is the lesson and th- that I wanted to convey in this little note is, you know, Charles had it fixed. It, it fixed his problem a year and a half ago. And another problem uh, uh, obviously occurred on that same drive. Um, and at that point, it was really causing him trouble. Clearly, had he run Spinrite, uh, you know, every six months. I mean, I recognize it takes a long time to run because it's doing a lot of work on drives which have become massive. So it's not something convenient to do, you know, weekly. But every six months, for example, would have prevented this problem from occurring and would have it would have probably been able to recover whatever data was in that sector. Um, and I'm not sure that it wasn't able to or was perhaps did a partial recovery. But again, you you really don't want to let too much time go by. So if nothing else, I would remind current Spinrite owners that they can get some benefit from running it even when it hasn't, you know, when it's, when it's no longer a matter of life and death. Prophylactically, as we say. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's hear this letter from uh, your IT professional here. Yes, this is Dennis uh, in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He said, hi, Steve, I work on a help desk in a government department in Nova Scotia, Canada. Oh, boy. Including our department and other agencies, we support about 1,000 users. So he's at a help desk in a government agency with 1,000 users that he supports with his help desk. He says, the problem I have is that no one here seems to take electronic records computer security, or data integrity at all seriously. The data we deal with is extremely sensitive and includes a lot of personal data, (laughs) medical records, health information, and much more. Not only do we have problems with computer-related security, but also with physical security. The building I work in is really a joke. We have a security person down on one of the main floors, and the doors all have key cards. But during normal business hours, all it takes is a walk around the back of the building to get to the floor below, then a short ride in the elevator to get you to any floor in the building. Once on any given floor, there's a keypad on each door. But the code has only been changed once in the past few years. So everybody who ever worked there knows it. He says, every employee and former employee knows the code to almost every door because it's the same for each floor. Oh, and almost every employee will let just about anyone standing by the door in without any question whether they recognize them or not. What do they call that? Tailgating? I can't. Yeah, exactly. Tailgating. And in fact, it's, it's, it's funny because when I was setting up my access to level three, I was, I was specifically told, you know, you you scan your card, you stick your hand in the biometric hand scanner and the door unlocks. And mm-hmm. they said, you know, it, we're sorry, but, you know, do not let somebody else who approaches you in, mm-hmm. you know, say, you know, apologize to them and, you know, say, I'm sure you understand. I can't let you in, you know, close the door and then, you know, make them go through the same process. So, yeah, but again, it's it's. It's hard to enforce that social policy. It is. You know, and Canadians are friendly. 
That's your problem exactly. right there. They're nice guys. He's, he says, recently, a new policy came down from our CIO's office stating some key security points. The main ones were laptops must have encryption. Blackberries must Good. be password protected. Good. We're not allowed to use any means, parens, electronic or otherwise, to remember passwords. We must also. Really? They can't use like a RoboForm or some other password. Apparently, no electronic or, or, or otherwise means remember passwords. You just have to memorize them. Of course, we know the problem with that is then people will choose easily Easy. guessable passwords. Yep. He says, we also have a draft, but considered the working copy, acceptable use policy, AUP, that prohibits the use of peer to peer software such as LimeWire, BitTorrent, etc. Or Skype, as we were talking about last week. Uh, exactly. Yep. Yep. This policy also prohibits the use of any instant messaging software such as MSN, ICQ, AIM, etc., because they are supposedly not secure. He says the problem with this new policy and AUP is that no one is willing to enforce it. Right. I brought it up at a staff meeting with our team, including the manager, and was basically shot down and told that we can't do what the policy says we need to do. Does this seem wrong? I mean, the policy is not something that I would consider to be at our discretion to enforce. I assume, maybe incorrectly, that a policy is above us all, especially when we signed off when signed off by the highest ranking person in our organization. I suggested in this staff meeting that we really should look at whole disk encryption because more and more users have been purchasing notebooks and are traveling all over the world with them. I was told there was not enough information in this policy for us to know what we need to do. I agree with that because it didn't mention any level of encryption or which methods should be used, but it really wouldn't be hard to find out by asking the right questions. I'm guessing that part that part might be left even at our discre- that part might be left even at our discretion since the people who created the policies are not overly technical. Mm-hmm. The last sore point I have is that our organization doesn't even have a data classification scheme. We have no way of telling how confidential or public our documents, files, and records are. I believe this would be the first step we need to take in order to help provide the groundwork needed to base the rest of our security process and procedures on. The whole thing is very frustrating because I believe I have a decent grasp of security concepts, but since I am just a low-level help desk staffer, the higher-ups don't pay any attention to what I have to say. Do you have any advice on how to help convince my organization that security is important? P.S. My my apologies for writing such a long message. Thanks, Dennis. Oh, but he raises so many interesting questions. Yeah, I just, I really, I liked his note because, I mean, you can imagine how many people are are sitting around feeling a similar level of frustration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, we've, we've sort of, we've talked around these things in, you know, many of our podcasts, but we've never really talked about the challenge that, that corporate IT faces um, when it when it comes to enforcing security policies. Right. Well, it's especially difficult when you're a government agency because you also have, and this is not just true of government agencies, but healthcare agencies, a lot of, a lot of companies have a, a higher responsibility to security even than just a normal enterprise. I have a, a, a really good buddy who spends a lot of time working with 
corporate working in corporate environments, generally small companies, trying to help them with their security and and interacting with the employees. And one of the things that I think is is a fundamental sort of like root cause of a lot of the problems is that the the computers that people use in their corporate environment are almost universally exactly like right. the mach- the machines they use at home. Right. Why can't I do the same things I do at home? Exactly. Or, you know, they've got this is like, well, hey, wait a minute. My eight-year-old is able to, you know, use this machine right. and right. doesn't seem to have any problems. Why can't I do on my work machine same this, the same things I right. do at home? I think and, it's a communications issue, too. I think uh, if you're going to insist on an onerous, what's a seemingly onerous policy, You've got to be very clear and spend a lot of time with your employees explaining why it's necessary and what the risks are. I think a lot of it is people just underestimate the need for security. Well, yes, I mean, and we have, we hear even now that people are are receiving email, clicking on a link, and getting malware installed on their on, on their machine just by doing that. So, of course, then corporations say, "Okay, we're not going to allow attachments." And so then people are upset because it's like, okay, wait a minute, but what about good attachments? And the and you know the IT policy is well, there's no way to really be sure that it's a good right. attachment, so right. we're just going to say no attachments. Right. It's very difficult, uh, and uh, I don't envy the guys who have to do it. And I also am sympathetic for the employees because, you know, imagine being the IT guy at Tech TV, where you have all of these tech savvy people, who are not you know easily going to go along with anything you say and well, are going to try to get around anything you do and and that's a very good point leo uh it's it's one that i ha- had on my little outline for things i wanted to remember to mention and that is exactly that because computers are so ubiquitous now to some degree even the common users feel like i know what i'm doing i have one at home my 8 year old has one um you know i've got a laptop you know who are you to tell me that, that, you know, what I can and cannot do? Because, I mean, everyone to some degree feels like they're something of an expert. It used to be, remember, in the mainframe days, you literally had the computer on an elevated floor in an air-conditioned area. And, you know, technicians walked around in white lab coats. And there was this sense of, oh, you know, I don't know what all that is. But, whoa, that seems very impressive. Well, nothing is impressive now, seeming about a work machine. It looks like just the same machine people have at home. And so so I think that the sense that 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 employees know all that they need to know about their work machines um you know f- just exactly as you said further creates tension in the workplace. Well, and that's where um as much work as it is, additional work as it is, a really explicit policy that and, and and IT pros who take the time to explain why this is being implemented uh, might help. I think employees, you know, they want to be good employees. They don't want to. They don't. They don't want to cause unnecessary trouble. They just don't understand what what the issues are. Well, one of the one one of the things that I have suggested, and we've we've talked about it. We we touched on it briefly in the past uh, on under the issue of of compute of corporate monitoring of of employee machines is to literally, I mean, draconian as it seems, put a 
put a a couple line message on the on the bezel of the display monitor on every single company machine that says this is this computer which is property of you know xyz corporation Mm -hmm. is subject to continuous monitoring and filtering of you know all all activity you know this is you know not your property or something to that effect you could leave off the end part but i mean but you know the idea being this like look make it very clear to users that this is not their property right and then the the other thing that i think makes sense sort of as a as a safety valve is a a a company could certainly set up like a break room or the sort of the equivalent of an internet cafe where employees could take their laptops and plug in to a secure and unfiltered unrestricted network connection you know the idea being that you know you have a break room or a coffee room or something and it could it could easily set up you know a router there that is not in the corporate network that it has no c- connection to the rest of the network in any of the machines or resources within the corporation but just to allow users who want to check their personal email who want to be able to to use a laptop that they bring to work you know allow them sort of a safety valve That's in order interesting. To, in order to access the network in a safe yeah. way it's that kind of creative thinking it's going to take i think um, you can't you can't just be an authoritarian and say, no, this is the policy. You know, shut up. You're an employee. <laughs> Do what we say, because unfortunately, uh, as much as you'd like to say that, I'm sure uh, employees will find a way around it. Right. You've got well, to enlist fact, their help. You've got to enlist their support. And we've also sort of talked about, I mean, very much along these lines, how, for example, Hamachi could be used. Right. You know, as in, in in a peer-to-peer fashion, in order to circumvent some employee uh, protections to allow people to potentially, you know, get themselves in trouble. Yeah, we deal with that all the time. I do certainly do on the radio show because all the time I'll get employees calling me saying, "I'd like to circumvent these uh, restrictions." Yeah, I mean, li- literally asking you how to yeah. get around these problems. And, you know, I, I'm torn because on the one hand, I'm on the side of users and I want to say, yeah, you can. But on the other hand, and I usually try to do this, I also need to explain that, first of all, uh, the law is in your employer's favor. The law is very clear. Courts have always been very clear that the employers own the hardware, they own the software, and they could totally control what you do when you're at work. That's their property. So you don't have any rights when it comes to that. And uh, furthermore, you could, you could be risking your job. You start to try to get around these things. So I usually try to tell people that. But I, I sympathize, too. As a user, I'm no longer a user. I could, I'm my own IT guy. But as a user in the old days, I often chafed at those restrictions. Yeah. Well, and again, I think if, if, if there was some alternative that was reasonable, some way, for example, that, I mean, a, a, a corporate um, sponsored solution like giving people a a safe place that they can plug right, their laptops right. in that's, that's that that's protected and it's like okay look you know during the day this is what you do on the corporate machine and if you want to take a break to check your email to you know lord knows what you want to do but you know bring your own machine your own laptop and we will give you an isolated network 
that that you're able to do this with. Now, what about employees who have company laptops? That is a huge security risk because they bring them out into the unsecured open and they can bring back all sorts of nasties. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see a, a good solution. There is an interesting technology which Microsoft has has completed work on. Um, there was something that they had for Windows XP that used to be called the Shared Computer Toolkit. Mm-hmm. Microsoft Shared Computer Toolkit for Windows XP was the, was the full name. They've repackaged it and renamed it Windows Steady State. Um, I've begun to explore it as a solution for for uh, for like corporate desktops it's sort of targeted more it, its default configuration is targeted more to uh, as the original name implied shared computer environment for example like in a library or in an internet cafe when when you have when you want to essentially lock down a windows based pc so that so that anonymous and untrusted users can use the machine, and when they're done with it, it's it's basically anything that they did and, and what they can do itself could be restricted. But the idea being that anything that happens is flushed out of the system. Right. And there are some third-party apps like that, too, where uh, like you might use it as a hotel. So uh, you have a default s- setup. You know, the guy comes in, he's going to do, he's going to mess around on that computer. You let him mess around. But as soon as he leaves the machine, you reboot and it goes right back to the default configuration. Exactly. Exactly. And um, it, it turns out that, you know, that now that would be a problem in a in, in your typical corporate environment. Because yeah, you're destroying be, documents. Be, <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. But it turns out that although it's not the default configuration and it does require repartitioning that is creating another drive because steady state is only able to to return an entire drive to its original con- uh, condition but if you if you create another drive and put a the user's profile information and desktop and documents folders there then you can create a really interesting free solution which which is protected from anything they do and and won't execute code from this other drive, but still allows them to use it as, you know, their own workstation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So anyway, I'll, I'll be exploring that. And we're going to do at some point here before too long uh, a podcast talking about the specific configurations uh, of this. But it's an it, it's an interesting notion for for locking down a work machine. So it's not absolutely restrictive, but it protects itself. Right. Right. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're on both sides. We're on the sides of the user, but we also are very sympathetic, I think, to the IT guy who's got to deal with this. Well, yeah. And I'm sure that our listeners, I mean, are probably find themselves on both sides, Mm -hmm. too, Mm -hmm. even if they're, you know, even with their own family or children who they're where they're trying to say, look, um, you know, you just can't do this because it's going to infect all of our home network. Right. I mean, after right. all, to some degree, anybody with a router and multiple machines is a little is a little environment that that depends upon the security of each of the players within that community. And that's the truth. That's the truth. Yep. Well, very interesting subject. I'd love to hear from our audience about what they think. Next week will be a question and answer session. That might be a good time to include your thoughts on this and maybe your clever solutions. Uh, if you're an IT pro and you've found ways to solve some of these issues, um, I'm sure we'd uh, like to hear from you. 
Yep, grc.com slash feedback. There you go. grc.com is a place to go for Steve Gibson, of course. All of Steve Gibson. Not only this show, and you can get 16 kilobit versions there too, by the way, as well as transcriptions of each and every show, but also uh, all of his free security software, his very useful uh, notes like the Perfect Paper Password series. And let's not forget Spinrite, the world's finest, the best, the one and only hard drive maintenance. And I'm going to underscore maintenance today and recovery utility. It is a great program that everyone should have. GRC.com. Well, Steve, I'm going to work on getting rid of this cold. It's, it's almost gone now. I didn't cough once during the show, I think. So we'll see if I can do it for next week. <laughs> and I thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. Security now.